Welcome to Generation Squeezes Hard Truths. I'm Megan Wild. And I'm Paul Kershaw. Today we're bringing you our conversation with Joe O'Connor, Director of the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence in Toronto. Previously, Joe was the CEO of Four Day Week Global, which has piloted many successful work week reduction projects around the world. So Megan, today we're going to talk about shorter work weeks and potentially longer work lives. And, you know, I can imagine some of our listeners to Hard Truth like, why does a group that focuses on generational fairness talk about this issue? And I just wanted to highlight there's like two reasons. One, at Gen Squeeze, we have long said that a younger demographic is being squeezed for time. You know, as cost of living is leaving earnings behind, it's taking so much more parental adult time in the labor market that it's leaving less time at home. And we're like, that's one of like the intergenerational harms. And so shorter work weeks, shorter work years would help address that. But at the same time, we also know at Gen Squeeze that one of the big challenges for governments and intergenerational tension is like pension policy. We're living longer. People can often now be retired longer than they might have worked. And so we think about the distribution of work time over our lives. And, you know, we ask a younger demographic to be open to you know, potentially delay a little bit our retirement, given that we're living a decade longer than we used to. You have a good way of emphasizing why that's so important, though, and what a dramatic change has happened demographically. Can you say something about that part of this? Yeah, well, we do know that when we created a lot of our pension policy, like old age security, there were seven young baby boomers at the time for every retiree. But now that baby boomers have retired, there are just three working age residents for every retiree. And so that at this moment creates a lot of extra fiscal pressure. Plus, Baby boomers are living longer than did earlier generations of retirees. And we're expecting today's uh, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z will continue in that. That's one of the good things about, you know, population health has improved. So we got to think about adapting our retirement policy. And uh, one hard part of the conversation, this one falling on a younger demographic is like, might we delay when we retire? But in return for that, could we get a little bit more time each week now when we're feeling such a time squeeze as we're raising our kids, needing more time at the labor market to pay these insane housing prices? And with that, well, we want to welcome you to Hard Truth Show. It's really great for you to take the time to join us. No problem. Yeah, thanks for your own advocacy on this issue. All right. I wonder if you could start out by telling us what is wrong with the status quo of work weeks as they are now. Well, I think if you look back over the course of the last century, as productivity gains and technological advancements have happened right up to around the late 70s, early 80s, we've seen gradual decline in average work time across most of the Western world. And that decline really has flatlined um, over the course of the last number of decades, despite some of really kinds of incredible advancements that we would never have predicted midway through the last century. Globalization, the advent of email, the internet, digital communications. And so really we believe that there's a need to share the benefit of technological advancements and productivity gains with workers in the form of reduced work time. And this is even more necessary today in a world where the kinds of jobs that people are working are very different to the kinds of jobs that they worked several decades ago. And as a result, because so many people's work life is oriented around technology and so many people find it difficult to be able to disconnect and switch off from work. I think that we need this kind of deliberate reshaping of the system to better fit the kind of work and the kind of jobs that people um, are working in across the economy today. 
And you mentioned a little that we're obviously working differently now than we were in the past. Where did we get off track? I, I think that this is something that has been building up for a long period of time and really the pandemic has been the great disruptor that I think has exposed a lot of the flaws and deficiencies that have been building up in our system over the last number of decades. Um, burnout and quiet quitting is not a new phenomenon. It's not something that's been brought on by Gen Z or by the pandemic. This is something that is really just new terms or more commonly used terms for struggles that individuals and organizations have been grappling with for some time now when it comes to sustainable workloads. And we think that really reduced work time is a conversation which is much broader than the actual tool to try and solve the problem, which is the four day work week. It's getting at the heart of a lot of the problems that modern organizations and modern society are dealing with in terms of how our work life um, have really not just got out of whack in terms of the balance, but have really become crossed over into each other to a very lar large extent. Yeah, that's really interesting. In Gensk, we started talking about shorter work weeks 13 years ago as part of our overall recommendations to improve family policy and work-life balance for the generation raising young kids. And that was driven by, you know, a really strong feminist analysis at the time where, you know, we, we saw so many of our labor standards established in a moment when we assumed, especially for white privileged folks, that there would be like a breadwinner and a caregiver at home. And as the decades wore on from there, both for good feminist reasons and for economic reasons, we saw a shift more and more towards dual earner households, low parents in the labor market. But it then risked creating a bit of, you know, a, a hollowing out of time at home at these really critical moments of like raising young children, which we know is a social good, not to mention something parents want to do directly. How has that shaped some of your thinking about four day work weeks and, and the movements that you've been leading? So when I first got interested in this issue back in my home country of Ireland back in 2018, it was actually mostly inspired by some research that I was involved in in the Irish public sector, where we discovered that we had a huge volume of working parents, mostly women, who were already working reduced hour work weeks, often four day weeks, for an equivalent reduction in salary. And this is a choice that they had made returning from maternity leave, often for work-life balance or for childcare reasons. But when we actually looked at the qualitative data, what they were saying almost universally was that their responsibilities in the job were the same and the output that they were producing in four days or in, in reduced hours was the same as it was when they were working full time. So that really got me interested in this idea of Parkinson's law, this idea that a task expands to fill the time that's available for its completion. And that's something that I think really holds true in an awful lot of modern organizations and is at the heart of this inefficiency where work has kind of expanded beyond all common sense. And meanwhile, on the other side, people's ability to, to gain autonomy and to switch off in their lives outside of work has really been impeded upon um, to a large extent. Hmm, that's fascinating. I think, you know, to some degree, we've like been in inducing family, you know, workers to put more and more time into labor and shift to that dual earner household model. And maybe that's a reasonable adaptation, given the way in which globalization is unfolded and whatnot. There's, and there's more economic security to some degree post-divorce if both adults have had, you know, strong connections to the labor market. But did we have to assume that everyone was going to work those 40 plus hours per week, those five plus days a week? If we're going to have one adaptation, can't we simultaneously ad adapt the number of hours per week that we were expecting? Right. So I think it's so interesting to see you being at the cutting edge of leading that internationally and um, 
well done by you. Yeah, and I mean, that is an articulation of the problem and of the status quo. But if you look at why can the shorter work week start to address some of these deeply rooted and deeply ingrained um, inequities that we have, and I think really the answer lies in the fact that across most of civilization, women still hold the majority of part-time roles. And that is typically down to family choices and considerations. So what happens if you universalize shorter hours? Well, what happens is you even the playing field, you lead to a situation where men are empowered and enabled to take on a greater proportion of the caring and, and domestic responsibilities in the home. We've seen in the recent global trials that I've been involved in leading a much greater increase in terms of spending more time for family and, and, and caring amongst men than women, which I think suggests that the baseline there was much lower and there was much more room um, to catch up. And I think on the other side, you lead to a scenario where when it comes to things like leadership opportunities, training opportunities, career progression opportunities, I think that you lead to a much more even playing field for women in terms of the competitive dynamics of the modern workplace. Yeah, our research, you know, really affirms that, which is why we view this shorter work week as a critical part of a, you know, a vision for gender equality, both, you know, more opportunity for men to share the responsibilities and the joys of caregiving at home and more opportunity for, you know, women to share the opportunity and joys of being in the labor market. And so it's, it's interesting to hear you describe it in the same way. For sure. And I, I think that, that often those kind of broader economic, social, environmental implications of this can get a little bit overlooked, even I would say in, in my own work, because a lot of the data, the case studies, the research that we have at the moment is quite focused on the organizational and the individual employee level. And we probably, you know, at this point, we have not seen enough systemic adoption of shorter work weeks across industries, across economies, to be able to make that what is the aggregated impact if you reduce work time across the board? Um, we're really not in a position to say that. We can point to some research that suggests that this would be the impact, some very positive early insights. But I think we're probably better positioned today to make a, a, an analysis or a judgment on how does this impact the company and how does this impact the individual employee? But certainly as this movement hopefully continues to grow, I think those gender equity, those environmental considerations really need to come much more to the fore. And what are some of the impacts you've seen then at that organizational and personal level? So I think if you look at the results from the, the global trials that I've been involved in, you know, the evidence at this point, I think, is very much in that shorter work weeks can lead to happier and healthier employees. They can lead to organizations that are better positioned to be able to attract and retain talent. And very surprisingly for people, they can lead to more productive and more efficient organizations. You know, at the heart of that is that the shorter work week is often when you look underneath the bonnet, you know, you look beyond the outcome and you look at the process. The process here is really an operational excellence project. This is really about how do we change the way that we work in order to be able to achieve the same results in less time? And that doesn't mean doing the same work in the same way. It doesn't mean doing your tasks quicker, faster, more intensively. It means really rethinking and redesigning um, the way that we work. And I think that, that this comes to the heart of the fact that you know, lots of modern roles have been really completely overwhelmed with this fluff when it comes to overlong and unnecessary meetings, distraction and interruption in the workday, you know, poor use of technology, outdated processes. And once you actually put in place a framework 
and an incentive structure. You know, the shorter work week is a very powerful incentive um, because it is still something that is unique enough that it is a life-changing and a transformative benefit for the employees that can avail of it. Once you put that in place, you find that actually getting five days worth of outcomes in four days of work is often much less of a of a impossible dream than you might have first believed that it is. Are there some specific examples of, of countries that you think were particularly good models of the benefits or alternatively countries where you've seen this not go well and what we might learn from them? Sure. I, I mean, I, I think the, the first major study and probably still one of the largest um, spread studies that we've seen was in Iceland. The, the government of Iceland um, led a research project initially, which has now been expanded to the vast majority of their economy. It went on between 2015 and 2018, um, where it wasn't just four day weeks, but it was an overall reduction in work time in the order of about four to five hours uh, across the economy. That has been extraordinarily effective, very, very positive results. And we've seen similar results in the global trials that I've been involved in, in the US and Canada, in the UK, in Australasia. I do think that if you look at where this has been happening and where the momentum has been greatest, it has been quite Anglo-Saxon centric. It has been quite focused on you know, Western developed countries. But that said, I think that we're starting to see in countries like South Africa and countries like Brazil, more and more examples of forward thinking organizations taking the lead on this. We're seeing governments in Spain and Portugal launching pilot programs. So this is something that I think is really growing right across the world at this point. Given those international examples, what do you see as the primary policy levers that we could use uh, in Canada to either nudge or more forcefully push employers in the direction of shorter work weeks? So my view on this is if you look at how the eight-hour day, the five-day week, the weekend as we know it today came about, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't start with legislation. This was something that was popularized and you know was really won through collective bargaining at an industry level, through pioneering business leaders, taking the initiative for a competitive advantage. So my personal view is that the idea of across the board forced legislation is something which I think that there might well be a time and a place for. I don't think that time and place is today. I think when you look at the debate that happened in California, when the, the bill was proposed there, it was quite polarizing. Um, you know, and this is something where I think to be successful, we need to position about how actually having happier, healthier, better rested workers and as something that can be good for the economy, good for business. So I see it government as being an enabling role. In the public sector, I think there's an opportunity and a role leading trials within the public service. I think that they have a role within the private sector from an incentivization standpoint, whether that's through tax breaks and subsidies to encourage organizations to innovate and to, you know, because this is a risk. I think we need to, to acknowledge that to become a four-day week company in a five-day week world when most of your clients, your stakeholders are working five days, that is a heavier lift for an organization than maybe it might be in hopefully a decade from now if this is the, the new normal. You know? So in order to, to encourage those organizations to be pioneers, to be first movers, early adapters, there's a role for government in supporting them through providing training, providing incentives. And I think also potentially looking at from a legislative standpoint, whereby you know, we know lots of organizations who have adopted shorter work weeks 
where contractually people are still on five day, 38, 40, 40 hour contracts because our legislation is so built around the five day a week model that there can be unintended consequences for annual leave, for pension provision. And so there is potentially an opportunity there for government to start to offer greater flexibility within the legislation where that, where if you're an organization that doesn't want to just do this as a policy change, you want to do this as a contract change, you're not going to be disadvantaged by virtue of having chosen that model. Well, I think you identified two policy levers that really matter in the Canadian context. Because right now, you know, when employers have to pay for our Canada pension plan or our employment insurance benefits, you know, there's sort of a flat fee up to about 40 hours per week and thereafter, there's nothing. And so you're like, okay, well, after that 40 hours per week, you know, I'm getting sort of this extra hours without having to pay these CPP and EI benefits. Like, that's not a good incentive. That's inducing longer hours. We want to like figure out how that we can incentivize it so that you're like, oh, you know, actually make it more affordable to be employing people for those 35 hours, 34 hours, 32 hours a week. Make that an incentive for the CPP and the EI contributions that employers have to make. And to some degree, start to then ramp up the charges when you're using people for longer hours. Isn't that an option to have? Absolutely. And what about even like our overtime legislation and whatnot? Isn't that another policy to start saying, you know, those premiums kick in at slightly earlier hours and that, you know, is another way to nudge our employers? Right. I mean, I think certainly if you look at the idea that government needs to to lead on this rather than follow it. If you look at the private sector versus the public sector, there are much more organizations in the private sector that are taking a much more output-based, value-based approach to what matters rather than hours or time. We've seen marketing agencies, law firms, um, accountancy practices, even here in Canada, who have moved away from hourly billing to value-based, fixed-fee, project-based billing. Hmm. And, And I think that in itself is an enabler and a step on the road to actually disrupting this relationship between time and revenue and starting to open the door and unlock the potential for a shorter work week. One other really practical consideration for government is in contracting. And is in the fact that a lot of government contracting is still based on hourly rates. And we see this really affecting nonprofits and charities, whereby often one of the biggest uh, obstacles for not for profits who want to move to shorter work weeks is the fact that typically they may be in receipt of major government contracts or public funds that are still based on hourly allocations rather than what are you delivering? What is the output that, that you're delivering as part of this work? Even just changing that would have a huge impact on on the not-for-profit sector um, here in Canada. I'll just jump in with one more, Megan. We often struggle at Gen Squeeze about how to describe this really succinctly for people. Is it the four-day work week? I mean, there's a part of me that wants to say that's great branding, but you know, many companies are going to say at certain moments we actually might need longer commitments from people. But we can have shorter work years, like we can adapt to our business cycle where there's kind of highs and lows, there's intense periods. And then, you know, in reward for that intense period, there's like longer periods away. How does that factor into your thinking? You talk about four day work weeks. How does that relate to like a shorter work year that might at certain moments tolerate long work weeks? You've absolutely nailed uh, something that I've been grappling with for, for, for many years now. You know, I used to lead an organization that was called Four Day Week Global. And very intentionally, the organization that we've set up here in Canada is the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence. And my experience is that four day week, it's a little bit clickbait. It's much more immediate. It's much more attention grabbing. It's much more conversation starting, but it's also more polarizing. It also closes as many doors sometimes as it opens. 
And this is a broader conversation than, than just the four-day work week. You know, if you look at today's economy, nobody is arguing that people that currently don't work a typical five-day, nine-to-five work week, so people who are working, let's say, overnight shifts in hospitals, nobody is arguing that those people should move to a four-day work week, as far as I'm aware. So this is about broader work time reduction. For some organizations, that might be four-day week. It might be shorter work days. We see lots of organizations here in Canada experimenting summer Fridays. Often the success of that might then lead them to say, you know what, this is working so well. We don't want to get rid of this in September. You know, and even if you take areas like professional services, where people are regularly overworking their contracted hours, they're working, they're contrary to work 40 hours. But in reality, if you look at their real working time, it's probably 50, 55, 60 hours a week. So for those companies, I've had leaders come to me with the ambition for a shorter work week. And when we've looked at how those organizations are operating, we've often said, you know what, thinking about changing the work week structure is not for today. It might be for tomorrow. What you need to do today is how can we achieve greater efficiencies, greater balance, greater control within the existing work week so that people can have a little bit more balance, so that people can actually finish their work day at five o'clock instead of seven o'clock. So this conversation about how do we create this downward pressure on time, which is just something that is extrapolated you know, beyond belief in recent decades, largely down to, to technology. Um, I think that's really at the, at the core of, of what this conversation is really all about. A time dividend. That was a phrase we used to play around with. How can we give a time dividend, which is like time outside of the labor market to do the things that are joyful or even when they're not joyful, we have lots of responsibilities that we got to fulfill. That's really, really interesting, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is something that it's about giving people more time for the things that matter outside of work. But it's also about enabling and empowering people to make better use of their time make more intentional use of their time while they're at work, because that's you know an often overlooked benefit of companies who successfully adopt shorter work week models is that job quality tends to go up. You know, if you create a structure whereby you're eliminating unnecessary administrative work, you're eliminating the sense that, you know, when the client says jump, we say how high, that we need to be available and responsive to every piece of communication that comes in. You're eliminating kind of pointless meetings that go on too long or where people don't need to be in the room. So if you can actually free up time, not just for people to be able to do the things that really matter to them outside of work, but actually to be able to hone in on the things that they know drive value, that they know are making a real contribution to their organization's objectives while they're at work. I mean, that's a double dividend. That's something that can boost people's life satisfaction in two ways, you know? Well, then, Joe, you know, when I think about the time dividend on a week by week or over a year basis, you know, it does make me think that at Gen Squeeze, when we've been thinking about work time reduction on a, on a week by week or in a yearly basis, we've also put it as part of a, a broader observation, though, that Canadians, as in people in many industrialized countries, we're, we're living longer, which is a great thing. But we, we know that longer lives pose some serious challenges for fiscal policy, given that our re- retirement policies were designed decades ago when people were living the best part of a decade less. Indeed, when we first in Canada created the old age security system, the age at which you were eligible for old age security was 70 and life expectancy was about 72, if I recall. 
But now you're, you know, we're eligible for old age security at age 65. People are living on average into their mid 80s. And so it's had Gen Squeeze thinking that if we're going to adapt to like the work-life balance pressures that are facing a younger demographic today as a result of the shift to dual-earner families, lone parents, might we not simultaneously adapt though the fact that we're living longer? And is there like a nice trade-off that we could have shorter work years, shorter work weeks in return for slightly longer work lives, you know, delaying a little bit the age at which we're eligible for some of our public pension programs? I wonder, Joe, what do you think about that? I think that this is something that is an inevitability to some extent. Um, I think that we've seen this in France, we've seen this across you know, very many countries where the, this question of the retirement age is, is becoming a very hot topic. And I think it's probably something that you've experienced this, I'm sure, at, at Gen Squeeze. You know, back in Ireland, we went through a major financial crisis, a major um, period of austerity. And you know, if you look at the distributive impact of the measures that were taken to kind of contract the economy at that time, it tended to fall on younger people, largely because of voting demographic. Typically, older people voted more and therefore, you know, were, were less of an easy target. So that absolutely plays into this consideration. Let me let me give you another one, though, which is not something that they talk about too often um, because it's definitely on the, the less fluffy, cuddly side of the four-day week um, debate. But a big part, if you look at academic research, a big reason why we have seen this flatlining in, in work time reduction, yes, it's because of more neoliberal governments and economic policies, Yes, it's because of greater corporate power and, you know, a lot more money going into dividends rather than um, being distributed to employees. But there's also a part of this that is choice. It's individual choice whereby we've had a set of decades where there's been a greater preference for luxury and consumption over leisure. And there is a lot of signs now with the, the movement now, I think, to address sustainability, climate change issues, which is really prevalent amongst younger people. There are definitely a lot of signs which suggest that that period where we were very focused on consumption over leisure is maybe starting to move back in the other direction. And I think that is also part of why the four-day week and the shorter work week is having a day. It's from the demand side. It's that I think you know this has been really brought out by the pandemic where the value of having that extra time is something that is I think a much greater priority for, for a lot of people, particularly younger people. So I say all of this to say that, you know, a lot of academics who advocate for work time reduction and who really believe in this concept believe that there's also an element of a trade-off where it's going to cause a degree of pay deflation, whereby, you know, and that is not necessarily in the form of pay cuts because all of the organizations that I work with, it's about reduced hours, same output for the same pay. But it is absolutely true to say that do organizations who successfully adopt four-day weeks in the current climate, do they feel less of a pressure to reward people through pay increases alone? I think they probably do. And so there's an idea that effectively, if you kind of have that deflationary impact on pay going up as a result of offering people something else that's very valuable, that that could also curb consumption and have some impact on the environment over time. So. I think that there's a big macro picture that this debate fits into, which when you zoom out, I think is, is very important to consider. Oh, it makes me think so many things. I mean, on the one hand, when we first started talking about shorter work years, we did it as part of our green family policy. And the idea was that this, this shift away from labor market time while still you know, having policy to reduce poverty and whatnot, but it, it could help with the consumption issues driving 
a lack of sustainability driving some of the risks of climate change. And so it was like slower growth by design, not by disaster. And revamping our work hours were part of that. So it's really interesting to hear you invoke that theme again. I wonder though, the name you chose for your, the organization in, in Canada is about work time reduction. Given that you're thinking it's almost inevitable that we're going to be delaying the, the age of retirement, given the fact we're living longer, is it work time reduction or is it just better distributing it across our work lives? I think it probably needs to be both. Like from a popularity perspective, most people, you give them the choice. Do you want a four day a week or do you want a six hour, seven hour a day? The demand side is much stronger on the four day week. And from an implementation perspective, often it's easier to do a four day week because if you're trying to create that kind of deliberate break, deliberate stop, you know, if you're working an hour less today, then it's much easier for you to just revert to type and to continue to work. So the, the real reduction tends to be lower. If you give people a scheduled day off and carve out that time, it's much more likely that they're going to actually honor that, stick to that over a period of time. So, you know, I think, yes, there's, there's an argument to be made that we need to distribute work better across our life cycle. But I think that there's no question that some of the issues that we have around performative work um, and this idea that long hours is a badge of honor and the impact that that has on burnout, that is a day-to-day, week-to-week issue that needs to be addressed at its source. And so containing it then with four days, not five, six-hour days is one way to do that. And that's, that's where you're focusing like the work time reduction. And then I guess the better distribution across the life course may be, well, so you might have more of those four-day work weeks but until age 67, not 65. And so maybe that's then, it might not end up being over the life course exactly less time, but it is again, better distributed with these really good containers that help make us more efficient while we're on the job. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, you probably know more about that issue than I do, but my, my sense is that the reason for extending the retirement age is more about taking stock of changes in people's health and changes in people's personal preferences over time. And I would say most people today, whether it's 65, 67, 66, I'd say the percentage of people who choose to go into consultancy, fractional work, other endeavors, has naturally and organically become much greater because people have much more energy, typically more healthier, and therefore want their careers to continue at that age. So I would say that's more the reason for that to me then that there needs to be this trade-off. Because the reality is, is that today we already have the productive capacity and the technological tools at our disposal to work less. And if that's the case today, just you wait until five years down the road when generative AI has completely disrupted so many industries and created concerns, questions for people in terms of job roles, the future of their profession, but also inevitably is going to create an incredible amount of organizational efficiencies, which if they are not shared with workers in the form of reduced work time, you know, this is really gets to the heart of the distributive question that that's at play here. There's still a lot we'd hope to cover with you, but I do want to get at something that keeps popping up in my head about how do we keep having balance in your work life from being a luxury that just a few people get to enjoy? How do we, for someone who's working hard labor, working more years, even if they're shorter, still doesn't sound very good, I imagine. Or for gig workers who just have to struggle to find enough hours to even get by. How do we balance out some of these inequalities? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that often when we talk about the idea of the shorter work week, it's associated very much with white collar jobs, creative. But I mean, if you look 100 years ago, manufacturing was at the heart of the transition to eight hour day and a five day work week. So a lot of that was about where was the power base in the economy? A century ago, it was much more industrial. Today, it's much more technological and much more digital. So yes, it is not going to happen equally for everyone all at once. That's not how we won the five day week. And it isn't going to be how we win the four day week. There is going to be an element, the old labor idiom of you win this in the areas where it's easiest to win. You use that to create a kind of downward pressure on overall work time. You change the expectations, you change the rules and you expand out from there. So in a way, it's not helpful to say that because we have people who are working hourly wage jobs and who have no job security and who are in precarious employment, that that should mean that we should not fight this battle that I believe is there to be won in terms of how we redistribute work in large parts of the economy. Because, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely right to say if you're working in hospitality and you've got uncertain hours, low wages, you're hourly employed, those are all issues that need to be addressed for you. But I think you can fight two battles at once. And I think you can also recognize that if we can win this battle in two places, it's going to make it easier to win it in the next two and the next two and the next two. And you have to start somewhere. So, you know, we've seen success stories of this in manufacturing, in you know, construction. I can point to places where this has worked, but, you know, we also need to acknowledge the reality that the volume effect, the critical mass of adoption is happening in technology, professional services, nonprofits. And therefore, you know, the more we can normalize that, in areas that in today's economy do have a pretty significant power base, the more likely it is that over time we can achieve this for everybody. Yeah, Megan, and you know, thinking about your, your focus on the gig economy and those with precarity and often like struggling to get enough hours. When I think back to like France in 2000, when it started experimenting with shorter hours, it was done primarily actually to be trying to like create new employment opportunities for those who were underemployed didn't really play out that way, in part because we can be more efficient in shorter hours and get as much done. And so there wasn't as much need as, you know, as policy induced employers to have shorter hours. They didn't have to replace some of the lost hours because there was a productivity gain. But is there some growth in demand in labor so that those who right now are who are underemployed get additional opportunities as a result of a sort of population approach to having shorter hours of the way that we define full time work? Yeah, I think that there's some signs of that. And I think we're we're heading into a world where if there's going to be something that forces government and policymakers to take a much more active role in this debate. And, you know, if you look at certainly in North America, with the exception of a few local legislatures, this has not been something that has really been an active policy measure that governments have been involved in. It's been mostly driven by the private sector to date. If there's going to be a thing that changes that, it is the impact of AI. Because I believe if you look at what's going to happen, we're going to see, I think over time, there's going to be job losses. There's going to be roles that are made redundant, but those roles are going to be replaced by new roles. But there's going to be this transition period where with upskilling, with retraining, with transitions in and out of work, there's going to be losers in that. We can't stop this phenomenon, I would argue. But we can even that curve. We can balance it so that the actual impact in that hollow, in that period of transition, is less on the people who are most affected. And one of the big ways that you can do that is through reduced work time, 
in those industries that are going to see significant upheaval and disruption is something that could protect jobs during that transition period. So I think that's one of the big things to watch out for as a potential push into policy intervention in this space. I know we had only wanted to take 45 minutes of your time, so is there anything important you'd like to bring up that we didn't have a chance to talk about? No, we've covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate you taking the time to have the conversation and continuing to advocate for this. You guys have been active on this issue for a lot longer than even I have. And typically, I was talking about the four-day week back when it wasn't really a hot topic. So you guys have definitely been pioneers here in Canada on this issue, and I look forward to more opportunities to collaborate and to to see how we can work together to, to drive this forward. Wonderful. Let's do it. Thank you so much. No problem.